0: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be the editor-in-chief of an influential journal? What if that journal was brand new and in a completely new format, online and open access? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz practices psychiatry in Austin, Texas, where he is also the medical director of the Irwin Foundation. A foundation supporting initiatives in psychiatric education, services delivery, and research. From this base, he edits the online, open access, peer-reviewed journal, Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities in Medicine. He is also a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Hawaii and an adjunct professor in philosophy and psychiatry at the University of Louisville. Dr. Schwartz, who has authored, co-authored, or co-edited over a hundred papers and volumes, has also recently co-edited the book, CNS, Norepinephrine, Neurobiology, and Therapeutics. Welcome.
1: Hello, Leslie. How are you?
0: I'm good, but I'm a little tired after reading all of your credentials. But first of all, really, congratulations on this new editorship.
1: Well, thank you, Leslie. This is actually a wonderful opportunity. We are one of almost 200 open access journals that are available for all of the physicians that listen to you and anyone in the world with access to a computer covering every possible topic, and all of this is within the last few years.
0: So for those of us who maybe aren't savvy with this, what does open access mean?
1: It means that anyone in the world with a computer can download all of the articles, that they're stored in perpetuity, and they're free. Free? Absolutely free. So you don't have to pay for a subscription? No subscription costs. It's a remarkable phenomenon. It exploded several years ago. There are two major publishers. One is non-for-profit, the other is for-profit, and it's really sweeping the world. It's obviously also challenging traditional publishers because we're free.
0: Right. I mean, most journals are so expensive. How can you do it for free?
1: There's a very complicated way in which these journals are paid for. Universities subscribe to them. Institutions subscribe to them. The NIH supports this project, the Wellcome Foundation in England. There are, I believe, within Biomed Central, which is our publisher, participants from 32 different nations. The National Health Service in England is one of the subscribers. And then there are scholarships. So really, anyone can participate in this, including your readers. We would welcome a manuscript or a commentary on any of our papers. We're online. We're at www.peh-med.com, and if your listeners go there, They can find our journal, and they can find links to all of the other journals, journals in pediatrics, journals in internal medicine, journals in molecular biology, cell biology. It's really a remarkable phenomenon.
0: So tell us more about the journal PEH.
1: Well, we're unique among all of these other journals. They will typically cover either a medical discipline or a basic science discipline. There had been nothing on philosophy of medicine, social policy in medicine. There is an ethics journal but the philosophy of ethics, controversial topics in medicine, new ideas, theoretical perspectives. So we had an opportunity to put this together. It was actually put together by a colleague of mine, Dr. Dan Stein, in Cape Town, South Africa. And when Dan contacted me and said, would you like to be a part of this network, I was delighted. And then within the last year and behold, I became editor-in-chief.
0: Tell us, you know, I've always wondered what exactly does the editor-in-chief do?
1: I think it's kind of like being Tom Sawyer. You get all those other people to paint the fence. You somehow make it attractive for people to send in articles and send in commentaries and really do all of the work. And you actually, then you sit back and you look at these wonderful contributions. You send them to peer reviewers. You have a very talented team of associate editors and other editors to help you decide who should be peer reviewers, where articles could go to. And then these articles get judged and evaluated and commented upon. We have a very sympathetic process and they come out in print. We have one within the last month on actually the philosophy of psychiatry, a review of a series by Oxford University Press on that. We have another on organ transplantation, ethics in organ transplantation. We have one coming out in medical ethics. And then when these papers come out, we try to get commentaries. So if there's a controversy, we try to find people on the other side to write a commentary, and then we can have a discussion.
0: So this is a kind of an active process, again, very different than a traditional journal. You you publish it on the web, and people can respond to it in real time?
1: The wonderful thing about this is that even, even your listeners right now can go online, access our articles, write commentaries, and send them to us, and we'll review them, and we will possibly print them. Or they can write a formal commentary, which would be a paper in and of itself.
0: Now, when you say print, do you really mean print or just publish on the web?
1: We can publish on the web, and we also have the capacity of having real books in real life time. Now, there are costs associated with all of that.
0: Now, have the traditional journals been hostile towards you?
1: I think there is a wonderful and lively political process going on, which will only benefit the public and the medical profession in the long run. Well, if if you were a traditional publisher and this came up, you would say, well, this is terrible. Why should a university that has university press support open access publication and compete with the subscriptions that are bringing in real dollars? Beyond that, there is a mandate from institutions such as NIMH to make literature available to the public. You see, increasingly, there's a perception that when research dollars go into doing research Why should that research then be tied up in a for-profit journal and kept away from the public, apart from those who subscribe, either forever or for a period of time? Why not make that available forever? So open access also involves another way of doing it called repositories, where the people who write papers have to, by virtue of their grants, publish those papers on their own websites, or universities have to publish papers, so it's an evolving phenomenon. And it isn't clear at this point how this will turn out. But however it turns out, I think that it's the genie is out of the bottle and the public will benefit because all of this information will be available sooner and hopefully instantaneously. And really at this point it's a matter of who's going to pay the cost. Is it going to be the investigator putting up their website and publishing their own papers? Is it going to be the university? Is it going to be universities through subscriptions to journals such as ours where these, these articles can all be in one place so people can access them? But I'll tell you, we also have a service, and so do all of the other journals in open access. If you access an article, you can then go to PubMed, the index of articles, and you can find 50 articles related to the article that you're looking at. You can find the whole bibliography. You can also look at the author, and you can find everything that the author has written. So everything is indexed to everything else, and really it's just a tremendous way to find information.
0: So, Michael, let's talk about some of the issues that have been raised in your journal thus far
1: thing that's hot is the notion of transplantation.
0: What kind of material have you seen on that so far? I think
1: fundamentally, there are never enough organs to supply the demand of ill people for hearts and kidneys and parts of the body that are transplanted. And as you know, there's no value in a dead organ. The organ has to have life in it. So the question comes up, when is the donor dead? Now, critical care medicine has and wonders and basically making it more and more difficult for people to die. And people who are dying can now be resuscitated long after we might have traditionally thought that they were dead. So we have an increasing demand on the one side for organs that would be usable in transplantation. And on the other side, we have increasingly the capacity to keep people alive. So we've gone to criteria such as brain dead. Now I think that that was the first criteria that people had agreed to. But once again, you might not really be dead when your are brain dead, as, as, as you know. More recently, we've moved to the criteria of cardiac death. But how long after the heart stops beating is someone dead? Well, some of the guidelines might say two to five minutes, but other people would say 10 minutes. Other people would say an hour. Other people would say, well, you don't know until the person is really dead, at which point their organs are no good anymore. So the ethical dilemma is, do you basically have people going around with cards saying that they are willing to donate their organs. And then when they're dead a few minutes, they're declared dead and the organs are donated when in fact, these people might be resuscitated. Or do you tell people this, in which case we would have a dramatic possible decrease in the number of people who are willing to allow their organs to be donated. So do you keep people in the dark for the good of the overall population? That's a utilitarian perspective. Or do you inform people? Well, if you believe the former, that seems to be where the ethical traditions are going. If you believe the latter, well, people who are not alive are being used for transplantation purposes. So we have a really steamy ethical issue here, and that is being debated.
0: Now, in your journal, Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities in Medicine, this type of article or paper is posted. And then, as you mentioned, the, the audience is invited to comment on the paper. Have you seen much commentary about this issue of organ donation?
1: We have the original article by a group in the United States and Canada raising the question of, is the paradigm realistic or should the public be more informed about Maybe the possibility that they're not quite as dead as they think they are. And we have a commentary coming from someone who has really very much participated in the creation of these guidelines in Canada. And then a physician in England sent us a very intelligent commentary, basically, perhaps in an even more clinician's voice this is a man who has resuscitated many people who now is retired, really standing for more disclosure and more communication among the public.
0: One more time, can you give us the website where people can access your journal?
1: It's www.peh-med.com. That stands for philosophy, ethics, and humanities-med.com.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Mike. Thank you, Leslie. So we've been discussing philosophy, ethics, and humanities in medicine, a new online open access journal. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to
1: our next visit.